Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 29? This morning we're going to have a lot of text in front of us, all of Genesis 29, uh, as well as the first half, the first uh, 24 verses of chapter 30, all of this being kind of one story uh, about uh, the messiness that Jacob finds himself in, in his new family. We'll get to this uh, in just a moment, but I have found pastoring you that sometimes when we're about to make a change, the best thing to do is to warn you about it and to tell you why we're doing it. So I'm about to do that. When you get in here next Sunday, this area behind me is going to look different and it's going to be okay. Um, if you, some of you just need to be told, it's going to be okay. Now, if you were here for our members meeting back in November, you already know a little about this because we budgeted for it. Uh, but as our elders were discussing um, the pandemic and what changes were continuing to be made uh, within our church and what, really what's happening, uh, things that would linger beyond just uh, COVID-19, one of the things that we have realized is uh, the live stream and the necessity of having our worship services and our recorded sermons online has become all the more important in the midst of the pandemic. And I believe, we believe, will continue to be so uh, even afterwards. We were live streaming before all of this happened, but nothing to the level that we're doing now. And I don't think I've met a single new person that has come to the life of our church since the pandemic started who hasn't told me I've watched multiple of your sermons online before coming here. And so in many ways, our live stream and recorded sermons are going to be the front door for a lot of people. It's like you, before you go to a new restaurant, you go to the website and look at the menu first, right? Well, that's what people are now doing with churches online. And so we want this to be as clean of a look online as it can possibly be. So that's why we're making the change. It's not about being flashy and modern and new. We're just wanting to clean this section up and do some things uh, behind uh, myself and the worship team that's going to make our uh, online uh, worship services and, and recorded sermons as good of a quality as they can be. So the guys, our media team's getting to work after this service, and hopefully, if all goes well, uh, it will be completed by uh, next Sunday morning when you get in here. So just you're forewarned, all right? That's all I'm going to say about it. Would you stand with me now? We're going to start in verse 1. Because this text is so long, I'm just going to really read the first section, the first 14 verses for us, uh, which sets the scene for this event. Starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And he said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go to pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. 
Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his, bro- his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him, kissed him, and brought him to his house Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are, bone, are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Let's pray together. Our Father, we gather this morning to worship you. And we pray, God, by the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, and our congregation gathering to sing your praise that we would above all else glorify your mighty name for you alone are God. Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that it would encourage us in our faith, allow it to strengthen our relationship with you. Oh Lord, would you teach us from your word now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Lord in the Mess. As a way of introduction this morning, let me just ask you a question. Do you know anybody in your life who just never seems to be able to get it all together? Their life is just a mess. And no matter what they do, how hard they try, what transpires, what what they think is going to happen in the future. It just seems like they go from one either tragedy or messy situation to the next. These people just seem like they can't ever catch a break. Now, I said that, I asked that question, and I have no doubt everybody in this room thought of someone. You very likely didn't think of yourself. Most people aren't self-aware enough to answer that question, yes, about themselves. Maybe a few are, maybe you are this morning and just think you're that person that just never can seem to catch a break at all. But as I read this text, Jacob really seems like that guy. Like the guy that just, no matter what, some of what we're gonna see today is his fault. Some of what we're going to see today isn't necessarily his fault, but man, does the mess just almost drown Jacob in this chapter and a half. It, it seems as if he goes from what was a bad situation, I mean, just think about what we've seen in the weeks before, born, grabbing the heel of his brother, named heel grabber, deceiver, his father favoring his brother while his mother favored him, and what that probably did to the relationship, forcing his brother to negotiate for his birthright for a cup of soup, later scheming with his mother to deceive his blind father, to steal the blessing from his brother. Now his brother Esau seeking to kill him, just buying his time, waiting for dad to die. Mom, once again, cooks up another scheme to save Jacob's life, to send him far away to her homeland under the premise that he can't marry a woman from Canaan sent away by his father, alone, long, weary, travel on the road, experienced God. As we saw last week, a true, real experience, which I believe the text leads us to understand that in that moment, Jacob comes to faith that this should be a new man. And it seems as if all is before him. 
And if you've never read this whole text before, not just what I read, if you've never read the whole thing and you just hear what I read in the beginning, you, and even some verses down below it we're going to see, you, you may think, man, Jacob's really doing, doing okay. This really was a turning point and, and a good moment. Now everything's going to work out for him. And we know those people that will have these moments in their life think everything's going to work out from here on out because something's happened and, and it never really seems to. And that's where Jacob is. But ultimately, church family, this is not a sermon about Jacob's messy life, although we're going to see his messy life. It's not even a sermon about your messy life, although if you're going to be honest with yourself, we all have a little bit of mess. Some mess in your past, some in the midst of mess right now, others a mess on the horizon. But if we're honest, we could all relate to Jacob, at least in part here. But this isn't a sermon so much about his life or ours as it is about the Lord in the midst of the mess. What I don't want us to miss today is that the Lord is present and active in what happens in Jacob's life. And here's what I want you to know. The Lord is present and active in your life too. So let's see. First, the Lord guides Jacob as he heads for the mess. Those first 14 verses showed us that everything starts out great for Jacob. He's traveled for weeks, possibly months, from Canaan to Mesopotamia alone, encounters the Lord on the road. But even that picture of how he's having to live, right? I mean, a rock for his pillow. This was not an easy journey. And he's finally come to this land that he's not even sure the people are going to be there when he gets there, right? There's a lot that could have happened from the last time one of his relatives was there. The last person connected to the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to go to that land, to be in that land was his mother. And she came because Abraham sent a servant to get a wife or his daughter from his family, it has been a very long time. Decades have passed since his mother, Rebecca, was home. Could that family have moved? Could some tragedy befallen them and then no longer be there? Maybe no one in that family is even alive anymore. Maybe they wouldn't be receptive of his coming. And yet he trusts the Lord and the Lord leads him. Now, weeks, maybe even months have passed between Jacob's experience with God in the desert and this moment, but because of the, narr the way the narrative is told, they're crunched right together. So it's important for us to see that God is guiding Jacob because that's what God promised. God promised, I will be with you. I will show you the way. And not only that, I'm gonna make the end too. I'm gonna bring you back to this land that I'm promising you. God had promised him that he would have a wife and children and that God would bless him and that God would provide the land. He, he's promised all of this. And this story begins with, with these positive notes. He comes, the first people he finds know his family. And they say, not only do we know him, but look, there comes Rachel, your uncle's daughter. Here she comes with the sheep right now. And he's so He's so engrossed in these emotions that he, according to the text, moves this rock that it took multiple men to move. <laughs> and also becomes so excited over this, becomes the only man in the entire Bible that we're told kisses a woman that's not his wife. At least not yet, his wife. 
told he kisses Rachel. Now, this is not a romantic kiss, but an excited one. He, he's found that what he's looking for. He has confirmation from God. God is guiding Jacob. And while we haven't gotten to the messy part yet, if you know this story, it's about to get really messy in his life. And yet the Lord is guiding his way. We, we often want to paint a relationship with the Lord in such a way that we say, if you'll just kind of have the experience that Jacob had with God in the desert, it's going to mean that there's no mess in your future. People want to sell that version of Christianity because it's so appealing. But that's not the truth of the scripture. The truth of the scripture is that God is going to be with us in the mess, not deliver us necessarily from it. And I believe if we have our understanding of the work of God right, it is sometimes God leads us directly into it, just like he does Jacob here. So he's found his family. Great. And we get more good news when we see that Jacob is now going to work for seven years as a bride price for Rachel. Pick up in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, shall you therefore serve me for nothing? So he's been there a month. Now we're going to negotiate some terms. Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban and his two daughters, the name, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him, but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, this just gets better, doesn't it? He rolls up to this well, finds these guys, knows his family. Here comes Rachel walking up. He's so excited. He moves this big stone. He kisses his cousin. That's who she is. All right. Goes to her dad and he's excited, accepts him into the family says, I want to marry her. And he says, yeah, yeah, I'd rather give her to you than any other man. And you got to work seven years for it. But we're told in the scriptures, that just seemed like days for him. I and mean, he's awestruck. He's in love. Man, this is working out great for Jacob. But there should be a hint for us. See, if we're a student of this story, there should be just, just a little flag should have gone off. Some little antenna should have said, wait a second. Something's different about this. If because we don't read this in a vacuum, right? We, we've been studying now for months, the story here in Genesis. And the last time someone came to this land was in Genesis 24. Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for Isaac. And the same man, Laban, is there. He's a much younger man at that point. His father, Bethuel, is still alive. And this servant is going to go in and negotiate for Rebecca, who would become Jacob's mother. And this is what we read in Genesis 24. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Not a day's work was done. No bride price was paid. They recognized, Bethuel at least, Laban there recognizes the work of the Lord and says, take her to be Isaac's wife. Laban has no intentions of striking the same kind of bargain his father struck. 
He knew why Jacob had come. And so he poses the questions, what shall your wages be? He knew what he wanted. And so he asked the question, let's get down to the point. But no, you're not taking her for free like your father ser- or like your grandfather's servant took my sister. What do you want? I want Rachel. Seven years. But hey, it's still, this isn't bad. He needed a place to hide out from his brother anyway. Seven years of work that seems like just days. This is one of those, you know, if you love your job, it doesn't ever feel like a job kind of moments, right? He loved his job because at the end, it was gonna be Rachel. He's gonna have the one that he wanted, the one that he loved. And the Lord has led him to this point. And if the text ends here, man, maybe we could preach that that encounter with God in the desert changed all of the temporal circumstances in Jacob's life. Oh, but that is not what happens at all. But the Lord, again, before we move on, make note, present and active, keeping his promise to Jacob, leading him to the family and leading him to the woman that he would marry. Number two, the Lord allows Jacob to suffer the consequences for his sin. What's going to happen next is that the deceiver, Jacob, the heel grabber, is going to become the deceived as Laban fools Jacob on his wedding night. Pick up back in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So he's worked just seven years. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. We're gonna have a party, a wedding. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve, you? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? The deceiver, Jacob, the heel grabber, has now become the deceived. We, we read the story and we must understand the connection that it has to Jacob's deception with his father. Remember, he is in this place because of his own deception. Because he deceived his father, which he was wholly accountable for. Remember, sermon two weeks ago, undeserving Jacob, undeserving Esau. Jacob lies to his father, who was blind. Leah, who we're told is weak of the eyes, comes into him at the instruction of her father when? At nighttime, when Jacob is unable to see. And the man doesn't care. He's been working for seven years for the woman that he loves. They've just had a big party. You can read into that what you want to. And it is time. Honeymoon is upon us. Jacob doesn't care. It's dark. He believed his uncle was going to give him the woman that he had worked for, but he deceives him just in that moment, sends in Leah instead of Rachel. But in the morning, behold, we're told in the scripture, she is not Rachel, but she is Leah. You see, Jesus warns us about situations like this. He says in Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. The light eventually shines on things that are done in the darkness. And that's what happens here. 
Jacob and his mother deceived their father, Isaac, in his blindness, in his darkness, not caring that they would one day be found out. All they wanted was to get that blessing, and they got it. Had to suffer the consequences later, but the blessing was the point. The same is going to be true here. The bond wanted him to marry Leah and not Rachel, knowing that the sun was going to come up. I mean, this is the most obvious point of the text, right? Like, how long can this deception last? Six hours? Eight hours? The sun was going to come up. The sun was going to shine its light and make the truth be known. He didn't care. And now the deceiver, who is in this situation because of his deception, has become the deceived and has married and consummated a marriage with the wrong woman. There are so many details that are left out of this story that we just kind of want in our flesh. Like, why did Laban do this? We know what story he gives Jacob in a minute, but why did he really do it? What did Leah think about it? What did Rachel think about it? There, there's so many sides of this that, that would be interesting to know, but these, sto- these, in, these details are left out intentionally. We're told the very basic facts of this in such a way that it points to Jacob's consequences for his sin. His relationship with the Lord that began there in that desert and that trust and faith that he had in God did not remove the sinful or the consequences for his sinful actions in his previous years. And the same is true for us. We don't just get to walk away from the consequences of our sin. So often we will deal with the consequences of certain sins for a very long time. But it does not mean God is not with us. God is with Jacob the deceiver who becomes the deceived. So then Jacob must now serve another seven years to marry Rachel. Look at verse 26. Laban said, it is, so, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So he appeals to culture. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, just a timeline here. He's been there seven years, marries Leah. He doesn't work another seven years and get Rachel. He actually marries Rachel a week after marrying Leah. That's what the text says, right? So the honeymoon, there was a week-long period apparently in that culture where marriage was consummated. Do that week, you'll get Rachel, and then on your good word, this man's just been deceived, but on your good word, you can have Rachel and you'll work another seven years. He actually stays another 13 years in total. We're told in the next chapter that he lived with Laban for 20 years. So what happens over the course of the rest of this chapter into the next happens over the period of 13 years. Living in the household of a man who he cannot trust Married now to two wives, which was never the Lord's design. The third time in Genesis that we've seen plural marriage, but the first time that we've seen it in the line of faith itself. Indentured for another seven years to an uncle, now father-in-law, who he could not trust, who deceived him, and now married to two women that we're going to see in a moment, have a bitter rivalry against each other. But know this. Even in the sinful schemes of Laban, which were brought about by the sinful schemes of Jacob, are used by God. 
in the midst of this twisted marriage arrangement, God is still present and the Lord is still working, but it does not remove a single ounce of guilt or responsibility from either man. Both of these men have to own what brought them to this point, but yet we can still look at this and say, God is at work. God is still moving and he is still keeping his promise to Jacob. Number three, the Lord works within a bitter sibling rivalry to continue his redemptive plan. Now, starting in verse 31 through verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 24, is just this litany of wives having children with a narrative text, an interesting little narrative text tucked, tucked in the middle. So I'm not going to approach it chronologically. I think it's helpful to look at it another way. But let me just give you the chronology quickly. The first thing that happens is that Leah has four children, Ruby and Simeon, Levi and Judah. Rachel's unable to have children. She sees that her sister is having children. So Rachel devises a scheme to have Jacob's children by her servant, Bilhah. And she has two, Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah sees that that works for Rachel. So she takes her servant, Zilpah, and has two more kids through her by her husband, Jacob, Gad, and Asher. Then the Lord reopens the womb of Leah and she has two more children. So far, Rachel's not had any of her own, just two through her servant. Leah's now on number five and number six of her own and two others through her, through her servant. And these last two would be Issachar and Zebulun and a daughter. Now we're told Jacob had more daughters, but we're ever only given the name of one, Dinah, and that becomes important when we get to chapter 34. Then finally, Rachel has two children. In this text, only one, another is born later. Benjamin, the first one here is Joseph. That's kind of the chronology of what happens over the course of 13 years. And, and you may think, man, 12 children, 11 boys, one girl, at least one girl, like, this ought to be happy times, right? No. <laughs> this, this, this whole thing, I mean, the more you read this, the more you just got to understand the, the messiness that Jacob must find himself in. Living, again, in this household with this guy he can't trust. Now his daughters at each other's throats, having children just to spite one another. Watch, that's what they're doing. Both sisters here use their children against the other. Pick up in verse 32 of Genesis 29. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, because of the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben's name means seeing. She then has another child, verse 33, named Simeon. And says, the Lord has heard that I am hated. Simeon means hated. And then she conceived again in verse 34, had another child, named Levi, which means joining, all right? My husband will be attached to me. Then in verse 35, she has another child, Judah, which means praise. The first three of four children, she names to spite her sister. That's what, those, that's what these things are, are meant to show. He's now gonna love me and not you. He's now gonna be attached to me and not you. It's not until child four that she actually praises God. He heard my prayer and not your prayer. So Leah, the first to conceive, the first to bear children, uses those children against her sister. But her sister's not innocent in this. 
when her sister uses her handmaid to have children for her, the second one that is born is named Naphtali, which means wrestling. And we see this in Genesis 30, verse eight, where Rachel says, with mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So when she finally has a child through her servant, she takes that as a win and names the child wrestling as a reminder to her sister that we've been fighting and I've ultimately won. We go forward into Genesis 30, 14 through 21. And we get this little narrative text right in the middle of this list. All these people having babies, right? And all these names, some of them seem kind of normal. Some of them seem kind of strange, but all of them pretty vindictive. And we get this little story. Again, children being used. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So remember, Reuben, he's growing up now. He's getting brothers. And, but she said to him, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Now, they've been married to the same man for years at this point. She's still bitter. And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So Leah is still bitter. Rachel, this is how much she thinks of her husband. I'll sell him to you for some fruit. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So Leah thinks this is a great idea. So he lay with her that night. Jacob, just passive. And we only see this guy put his foot down once and he picks it up really quick again. I mean, Jacob's just getting run over here. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Verse 19, and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has empowered me with good endowment. God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun, which means dwelling of honor. After she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And again, Dinah becomes important in chapter 34. But here we see these two women naming their children. And even in that narrative text, which I imagine that narrative text is, is really just uh, an example of one of the many ways these two women used their children in their constant battle and bickering against one another. But they don't just use their children. They also use their servants. Both sisters use their handmaids in their battle. Go back to Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This is the one moment we see Jacob say, no. And then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan means God has judged. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son, which was Naphtali, which we saw earlier, the name wrestling. So what does Rachel do? She concocts the same scheme that Sarah did with Abraham. And Jacob should have known better. Remember, Jacob doesn't live in a vacuum. This story's not happening apart from everything else. He knew the story of Abraham and Sarah 
He knew the story of Ishmael. His brother was married to two of Ishmael's daughters. He knew and yet did not care. We get this slight glimmer of hope that Jacob's putting his foot down, but no, he doesn't. And here now this servant woman has been taken advantage of because of Rachel's envy. Proverbs 14.30 tells us a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Now go back to what she says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Her envy is rotting her bones. She won't find her tranquilness, her tranquility in the Lord. She won't rest in him. She's put all of her hope in this fact that she's got to give children to Jacob because that's what her sister has done. The envy between these sisters was not only on Rachel, though, it was also on Leah. So Leah sees what Rachel does with her servant, and she stopped being able to give birth, so she concocts the same plan. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So he called his name Gad. Gad means fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, happy am I. For women have called me happy. She called his name Asher. Asher means blessed. Now we're told in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. That's part of the moral law of God. That two wrongs don't make a right. Leah didn't care. She does exactly what her sister did to her. I'm going to take this person who's innocent in all of this, this handmaid, and I'm going to make them a part of this scheme. And yet... Again, this is not a story of their messiness. This is a story of God's presence and God working. And we see that where the Lord shows grace to both of these sisters. All the way back when this story started, we skipped verse 31 in Genesis 29. Right as the Lord uh, sees that, that Leah is hated, neither have had children yet. And we read this, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The Lord showed grace to Leah, but he didn't only show grace to Leah, just like neither of these women are innocent in this, the Lord also shows grace to Rachel. So the story begins with the Lord showing grace and it ends with the Lord showing grace. Genesis 30, verse 20 and 23, 22, 23 and 24, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her wombs and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. The word Joseph means the Lord will add. So in the midst of their scheming and rivalry and envy and hatred towards one another and using children and using servants to, to bicker and get at one another, we still see God's presence and we still see God's action. But where do we see it? We see it in their brokenness. Proverbs 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And that's exactly what we see here with Leah and Rachel. That when Leah was hated, when Rachel was finally brokenhearted, that is when the Lord showed his grace. That is when the presence of the God, of the presence of God became active in this story. Now you say, wait a second. I've got four different women having what is 11 sons, one daughter, eventually another son. How do we know that this is, right? Because we, we've said this was God's design, one man, one woman. Plural marriage had never, find its way in the, had never found its way into the line of faith and, in Genesis, and now it has. How do we know that this is God working? Well, there's a reason I 
told you what all 12 of these, or 11 at this point, these boys' names mean. Because these 11 boys become 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the people of God, born in the midst of strife and envy and rivalry and hatred, born with people taking advantage of one another, and yet God, in the midst of it, is still active. So what? Do I trust the Lord to accomplish his purposes when surrounded by the messiness of this world? You can read this text and think, man, I am glad I am not Jacob. Amen. But if we're honest, we're all, we all have messiness in our lives. You may not feel it in this moment. Life may feel pretty good in this moment. But if you're honest, there's still, there's still some mess. You came out of mess, you're heading towards mess. You don't know what's on the horizon. And so we read this and we think, okay, well, if this isn't a story of Jacob and his messiness, then, then what am I supposed to see? I'm supposed to see the presence of God and the actions of, of God bringing about his purposes even in the midst of their sin and the consequences of it in what had to be the 20 longest years of Jacob's life. God is still moving. And he's doing that in your life too. God is working in your life. These last 11 months in the midst of this pandemic may have felt like the longest in your entire life. You may have felt like this whole world around us is just one great big ball of mess right now. But know this, God is still working to accomplish his purposes. He's promised us that that is what he is doing. In Isaiah 46, we read, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind your transgressors. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. As we have seen so often in Genesis, the theme is God is going to do what God is going to do. And deceiving Laban can't mess that up. Deceiving Jacob couldn't mess that up. Envious Rachel, envious Leah cannot mess it up because God is at work. And hear me today, God is at work in you. God's at work. Even in your messiness, God's at work. You say, okay, well, I affirm Isaiah 46. I believe God's doing that. But how do I see that in my life? Like, what, what can I grab onto and hold? We go to the New Testament for this. The book, book of Romans, chapter 8. And what Paul does in, in the book of Romans, particularly this first half of the book of Romans, is he really lays out this theology of salvation, convincing his readers of this very simple point. Everybody's lost. Everybody. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. The Jew couldn't be righteous. The Gentile certainly couldn't be righteous. Everybody's suffering from the same thing, and that is we all deserve death because of our sin. Then he makes the case for Jesus, that faith in Jesus alone is what saves us, that God regenerates hearts and makes us new. And then you get to chapter 8, and it's this crescendo. He's, he's building and building and building. And here's what he gets to in, in, in Romans 8, 
Starting in verse 28, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. People often want to stop reading right there. You stop reading right there, you don't know what that verse is about. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isaiah 46 is correct. God's purposes will be done in this world. And Romans 8 is also correct, that even in our messiness, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we have to change our understanding of what the word good means. Because we so desperately in our flesh want good to mean health and wealth and prosperity. That is not what good means. What good means here is why I said you had to read verse 29 and 30. What good means here is justification, sanctification, which is becoming like Jesus, and glorification, which is ultimately eternal life with him. That God is accomplishing his purpose in your life to save you. That's what God's doing that's the work that God's doing even in the midst of your messiness. So trust him to do it. Maybe you're in here and you say, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I've, I've never trusted in him for that. Well, know this. If you're hearing this today, then you can come to faith in Jesus today. And what's not promised is that he's going to change your mess. What he does promise you is that he will be with you in the middle of it. And that's better than anything else because what's good is that he will save you and begin the process of transforming you into the image of his son. That's what's good for us is that we become like Jesus, that this messiness around us, while it rages, it ultimately does not matter, even if we helped cause it like Jacob did here. Because God is doing his work and he is present and active in the midst of it. So will you trust him in that today? If you've never come to faith in Jesus, come to, come to him today. Call upon the name of the Lord, believing you will be saved and trusting that he will be with you in the midst of the mess. Begin the process of making you into the image of Jesus, ultimately so you can spend eternity with him. That's what it means for the good to be worked out in your life. For the Christian, hear me. I don't know what's going on in every one of your lives, but I would be confident in saying that this is true. Some of you feel like you're drowning right now. Some of you look at Jacob's family, deceiving uncle slash father-in-law, bickering envious wives, and you're jealous. You're like, man, that's nothing compared to what I have to live with. That's nothing to what's raging around me. I don't, I don't know what may be going on in your life, but here's what I can speak confidently of. The Lord knows it and the Lord is with you in the midst of it. And he will accomplish his purpose to save you and to make you into the image of his son even while you go through it. Will you but trust him to do that? 
You believe that he is capable of doing that, that he is not going to leave you alone. He didn't leave Jacob alone in the midst of this and he accomplishes his purpose through it and he will not leave you alone either. Let me pray for us. God, for the lost, would you redeem hearts? Draw them to yourself. Use their messy world around them to show them their great need for Jesus. Let them repent of their sins and turn towards you in faith, we pray. For the Christian who feels like the world is caving in around them, that all around just seems chaos and hopeless mess, would you, God, show them your presence in the midst and show them that you are working in their lives to accomplish your purpose, which is for our good and your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.